You can open up to James chapter 1. We're going to be in James chapter 1, uh, verse 5 through 8. Um, tonight you will see, just by looking really quickly through the passage, that we are going to be talking about effective prayer. What effective prayer looks like, uh, the assurances that effective prayer has, and, and even the hindrances of effective prayer. And before I read the passage and, and just say one thing of introduction here, it is always appropriate to talk about prayer, but it's particularly appropriate right now because for those of you that have been around for a while, every October we have our, our month-long prayer challenge, 30 minutes every day of October. Challenge yourself. Think about it. This is still a challenge that's about two weeks off until October begins, but start thinking about the wins and the wares of, of how you pray each day. And, and try to challenge yourself. Maybe you're praying more than 30 minutes a day. Maybe you're praying less. But, but either way, say, I want to challenge myself every day of October to spend 30 minutes, at least 30 minutes in prayer to my God. It may be broken up in half, like 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night. But still, I would challenge you to pursue it and seek to grow in your prayer life um, in that way. And even start to encourage your own heart and your own mind and the hearts and minds of people in your small group, perhaps, to, to do it as well and, and challenge one another through it. It's one of my favorite things to do every October. It's always very encouraging to my heart and to my mind, and I hope that for you as well. Let's read our passage, though. Um, this evening, we're going to just read James 1, 1 through 8, just to kind of remind ourselves of where we've been and where we're going. It says this, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes who are in the dispersion, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously. And without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we're thankful to open up your word again and hear wondrous things from your, from your word, truth from your word. And we pray that we would be ready to hear your word. That we would be, as James 1.19 says, quick to hear your word, slow to uh, speak against you when you are speaking, and slow to be angry. We pray that our hearts and our minds would not be inwardly challenging your word, but quietly, simply receiving your word. Create, uh, remove any divisions in our mind, in our heart, that may be distracting us from your word, even this evening. I pray that you would remove the things that want to turn our affections and turn our hearts away from you, and you would allow us to hear your word plainly and purely and You'd even allow us to be more humble as a result of hearing your word. And you would be sanctifying us even now through this hearing of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, 
The simple goal is to encourage you to understand effective prayer. Uh, James 5.16 talks about effective prayer. It says this, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. To have effective prayer is to have great ability to accomplish spiritual good in your life and in the life of others and in the world around you. Effective prayer is valuable prayer. But, but why do you particularly want effective prayer? Maybe that verse didn't stand out to you as, as full of all sorts of good things. Well, why do you want effective prayer? What assurances do you have that your prayer is effective in the ears of God? And are there any hindrances to prayer that makes it ineffective, useless, or weak? That's what we want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about oh, what effective prayer is and why you want it. I want to talk about what the assurances are of effective prayer. And I also want to talk about what is the hindrance of effective prayer. So let's get into it. Point number one, let's first examine the need of effective prayer. Why do you want your prayer to be effective? The need of effective prayer. And to kind of unpack the need, we need to kind of remember where we were last week. We learned that, that trials, trials are hard. Trials are difficult. In many ways, trials are, are bad. But we learn for the believer, for the Christian, trials are a valuable opportunity to sanctify us, to, to grow us. They are able to train us, to purify us. Trials squeeze you. Trials are like the crucible is for silver. It, it removes the weaknesses, the dross, and it makes the metal more precious, more valuable, and more strong. But it only does this through the application of intense heat. Trials are good for you. Trials are valuable. And remember, the ultimate result of trials in the believer's life, if they respond to them correctly, if they let perseverance have its perfect work, what is the result of trials? You are perfect. You are complete. And you are lacking in nothing. What a valuable, a valuable thing to have that be true of you, to be lacking in nothing. But, as tonight we will learn, trials will not benefit you at all until not only do you submit to them, but also if you receive God's grace in and through them. Trials will be of no benefit to you unless you receive continually God's grace into your life through the time of trial. A growth in the spirit, in the spiritual life of the believer through trials isn't just automatic. Hey, trials are in my life, therefore I grow. No, growth in the believer's life through trials come through your active posture of dependence before God. Trials expose the weakness and God's grace provides the strength that transforms you to become perfect and complete and lacking in Nothing. The call to the believer in trials is not just to endure them, but to grow by grace through them. 
You need to be actively pursuing growth through trials. But what is the special divine grace that you need to grow by trials? What does that look like? What is the grace that you need from God to grow through trials, to not just view trials as a bad thing that you must endure and get through, but rather view them as a valuable opportunity that you can grow closer to God and, and grow up in maturity? What is that special grace that you need from God? Notice verse 5. What do you, what do you, what do you need in times of trial? What... What, what, what must you not lack on your way to be lacking in nothing? You need this thing called spiritual wisdom. You need to ask for God's grace to give you wisdom. Now, James doesn't really define what wisdom is, but he does describe wisdom again and again. But Before we get to his description, let me try to define spiritual wisdom for you tonight so you can kind of get your your mind around it. What What is this wisdom? What is this valuable grace from God that you need? What is wisdom? It is, you could say, the ability, the skill, the insight, the vision to live life with heavenly perspective. It is the the skill, the ability, the vision to live life with eternal glasses on. So you, so you don't just see a trial as what it feels like in the moment. You see its eternal value in your life. That is wisdom. I can see beyond this hardship to the good thing that God is doing inside of me. That is wisdom. It is, you could say, critical it is a critical eternal value system that you have in your life and in your thinking. I can value this, not because it's pleasant, but because I ultimately believe what God's word says. It's wisdom, it's skill to live. It's, you could also say it's, it's, a, it's an inclination, it's a desire. Where do, you, where do you go in your trials? Do you hunger for the word of God in your trials, or do you just hunger for comfort in your trials? What does wisdom look like? Wisdom is to James, one commentator said, what faith is to Paul. And wisdom is to James what love is to John. And wisdom is to James what hope is to Peter. It is the ability to see your life spiritually and look beyond the present into the future and live differently because of it. It's it's a skill of living. That's what wisdom is. You could also say in in James it is the the good and perfect gift that comes from heaven that makes you more than just a hearer of God's word, but also a doer. That is wisdom in James. I don't just hear God's word, but I am inclined towards it. I desire it. I love it, and I do it. I, I put on heavenly wisdom in my practice. That is what wisdom is. And And listen, listen to the point. You want wisdom. You, you want its initial invasion into your life. You want its continual, gradual increase in your life. And you want its perfect completion in your life. You want wisdom, as we talked about last week. But we need to talk about this tonight. Wisdom is not natural to you. Wisdom is not something you were just born with, believe it or not. Spiritual wisdom, especially, is not something you were just born with. 
It, it's not a feeling that you have naturally. It's not an intuition that you just possess. God's true wisdom comes from God. God is the source of the wisdom that you desperately need to grow through your trials. God, God is the only source. Uh, the question that trials bring to you and to your life is this. Are you going to lean and rest in God's wisdom or in your own? God is the source of true wisdom. You need God's wisdom most as well. You want God's wisdom most as well. Turn in your Bibles over to Proverbs chapter 3. Look at the impact of God's wisdom in your life and think about this in terms of trials and difficulties and value systems. Proverbs chapter 3 says this about wisdom. I'll start reading in Proverbs 3 verse 5. This is, of course, written by that wise guy Solomon. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says this, Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your paths straight. This is what wisdom is. It means you trust in the Lord with all your heart and you don't lean on your own understanding. You acknowledge him. You recognize him in all of your ways. But, but look at the, the valuable result of wisdom. It makes God's wisdom makes your path straight. And why do you want straight paths? It, it makes it known. It makes it clear. It makes it hazard-free. You could say the, the way of the wise man is, is easier. The way of the wicked man is hard. In some, in some places, straight refers to righteousness, righteous paths. Matter of fact, Proverbs 2, verse 13 kind of has this idea of the way of the, the righteous delivers them from the path of darkness. What do you do on dark paths? You stumble, you trip, you fall, you are diverted from the path. But the straight path is clear to see, easy to see. You know what to do. You know how to obey God. And notice also in, in verse 8 as we keep reading, uh, do not be wise in your own eyes, fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. What will happen? What's the result of wisdom? It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Wisdom will have a positive impact even in your body. And then, then re jump down to 3, verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who obtains discernment. For her profit, that's referring to wisdom, is better than the profit of silver and her produce better than fine gold. She is more precious than pearls and nothing you desire compares with her. Length of days is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and glory. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her pathways are peace. What happens when God's wisdom floods your mind and floods your heart? Your mind and your heart are bastions of peace. Regardless of how chaotic the life that you live around you is, inside of you is peacefulness with God's wisdom. 
Also think of Job 28, talking about God being the only source of wisdom. Uh, God's wisdom is not found by human skill or human cunning, Job 28 tells you, right? People can dig really deep holes, they can climb really great heights, but no one can find God's wisdom. Not by human ingenuity on its own, but God knows where wisdom is found. Matter of fact, Job 28 said, God understands its way. He knows its place. How does he understand its way? How does he know its place? Because he is the source of wisdom. You have to go to God to find spiritual wisdom. Matter of fact, it says, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. If you want true spiritual wisdom in your life, that's going to result in peacefulness, in pleasantness. It comes and it's sourced in God and his wisdom dominating your heart and your mind. I love these other descriptions of God. He is the the fullness of wisdom. Daniel 2.22 says, Wisdom and power belong to you. Ephesians 3.10 says, God's wisdom is manifold, or it has multiple sides. It's infinite. It It is full. I love 1 Corinthians one twenty five because it kind of jokes about the fact that even you, on your best day, from your perspective, can't beat God's wisdom on his worst day, from your perspective, right? You, you may think, man, God isn't really being so wise in my life right now. It's really difficult right now. A lot of trials and troubles happening in my life right now. God's way doesn't seem so wise. His way seems foolish. But even on that day, his bad day, in your perspective, is better than your greatest day of wisdom. And, and Acts 6.3 suggests that the, the person who is full of the presence of God, namely the, the Holy Spirit, is someone who is also full of wisdom. To be full of God is to be full of wisdom, because God is the source of wisdom. God's wisdom is what you want and need most. But this brings us back to James. Go back to James. Now I want you to just see how James describes wisdom bearing fruit in your life. What will it look like in your life when God's wisdom is in your life? What will it look like to have God's wisdom in your life? James describes God's wisdom. Uh, James 3, verse 17 says this, after describing the wisdom that is from below, that is earthly, natural, and demonic, James says this about the wisdom that is from above. What is that wisdom? It is, first, a purity increasing in your life. James 3.17 goes on. It's then a peaceableness increasing in your life. James 3.17 goes on. It means you are more considerate. It means you are submissive. It means you are, you, are, you are easy to lead. It means you have more mercy in your life. You are merciful. It means your life is bubbling up with all sorts of good fruits. It means you don't have this thing called doubting in your life. It means your life doesn't have hypocrisy about it. You're the same person behind closed doors as you are in front of everyone. That's what wisdom looks like on the outside. Do you you want God's wisdom? This is how God's wisdom will come to you and shape your life. 
And this is the kind of wisdom you desperately need in trials if you are going to grow by them. God's wisdom that results in those kinds of things. But the question is, do you want God's wisdom? Do you want it? Because only through God's wisdom do you grow through trials. Now you may ask, yes, I want God's wisdom. But am I sure that God will give it to me? What what assurances do I have that God actually cares about little old me and my little old life? How How do I know that God will give me wisdom? I'm not very deserving of him right now. If you feel that way, I've got great news for you because that brings us to the next thing we've got to learn, and that is the assurance, the assurance of effective prayer. Effective prayer has incredible assurance. You should go home tonight desiring prayer because of the incredible assurance that our prayer has. What kind of God do you pray to? What kind of God do we pray to? We pray to the one who is assured to provide all that we need. We, we pray to a God who will sh- assuredly give us all that we need for life and godliness. We pray to a God who will answer our prayer for wisdom. And I, just want to, I just want to point out some fantastic, fantastic descriptions of who our God is in how he answers prayers from this verse. Did you see it? Some fantastic descriptions that give you great assurance for effective prayer. Um, Fantastic description, number one, I want you to notice the quickness of God to answer. I want you to notice the quickness of God to answer prayer. You see it there, James 1. James 1 verse 5, let him ask of God who gives Literally, the give there is before God, so it kind of sounds a little bit clunky. Ask of the giving God who gives, but, but the emphasis there is on his giving quality, his continual giving nature. You pray to a God who is quick to give. Quick to get. He is the giving God. Giving is what characterizes him, is what he is known as. He is the giving God. Giving is the inherent attribute of our God. He is a God who gives. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Notice this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It sounds like God gives a lot. For everyone who asks receives, and him who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? No father gives his son a stone. Be really funny. (laughs) But no father, when his son is in need, gives his son a stone. Or, it says in verse 10, if he asks for a fish, will he not, will he give it, he will not give him a snake, will he? No, surely not, right? No father would do this. No natural earthly father would do this. If you then, notice that, if you then, being evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Notice God is known to give what is good. God is a giving God. And notice the quickness of God in even his characterization. He is the giving God who gives. But notice not only the quickness of God to answer, but notice also the quality of God to answer. He gives to all generously. Notice the quality of the way God gives to you. I can say to you because he says to all, every shape and size of Christian, he gives to all. And notice he gives generously, which is kind of an interesting word. talks about God giving simply, wholly, fully, straightforward. Uh, God gives, it could be said, uh, wholeheartedly. The quality of God in giving is to give wholeheartedly. In other words, there, there's no division in him. There's no conflict. There's no resistance. There's no hesitation to give. And what does that mean? Well, think about it in, in comparison to ancient gods, other kinds of gods. Ancient gods are capricious by nature. Ancient gods are easily distracted. They, they quickly forget what they were doing. You've got to keep them paying attention to you or you die. I've got to keep offering sacrifices to this God so he's happy with me and he blesses me with crops. Because the God is so divided in his focus. He's got so many people to look after. And not only that, kind of a dumb God. He's kind of got some problems of his own. He's very distracted by all the, you know, marital trauma and crisis in the heavens. If you're a Greek. Oh, it's weird. How in the world do you worship gods like that? They're divided. They're distracted. They're not wholly focused. They're not wholehearted towards their worshipers. But God is the very opposite of that. I, I I think of 1 Kings 18, always. Elijah on Mount Carmel. What do the worshipers of Baal have to do to get Baal's attention? They're cutting themselves to get their God to pay attention to them. Because their gods are so distracted. And the gods seem to have very little care or concern for their worshipers. But God, he gives wholly. He gives wholeheartedly. He gives without conflict or division or hesitancy. I like to think of it like this. God doesn't give second-hand gifts. God doesn't give gifts that were half thought through. Oh, it was your birthday today? Yeah, I knew about it. Totally. Here you go. Isn't that like a half-eaten apple? No. God gives great gifts. He doesn't give cheap things. He doesn't give just what he has lying around to get you off of his back. He doesn't give chintzy gifts. 
There's a lot of things that are chintzy these days. Instead of, you know, in the 90s, we always joked about, you know, everything came with a sticker made in China. My little brother came out made in China. You know, like that, was, that was the joke of the 90s. But now we should really put a sticker on everything that says uh, made to be broken. This is made to break, so you'll have to buy it again in six months. Everything is chintzy. Everything is cheap. Everything comes to you, and you get this sense that it comes to you from a manufacturer who is a little bit hesitant to give you something good, but really is interested in taking your money. Not all people. Not all salesmen. Uh, But some. Things are cheap, but not with God. He gives holy wholeheartedly he gives fully and the word seems to suggest the the, the focus of God and the fullness of his attention and the glory of his gifts he gives to you as though you are his favorite He, he gives the very best he gives what you need most he gives something precious there's an interesting parallel to Matthew 7, talking about the God who gives generous in Luke chapter 11. And it says this, Luke says this, which means Jesus says this, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is what God gives. He gives his own presence and the fullness of his presence to his people. And he is a giving God who gives the greatest quality, just what you need. Maybe it's not what you want, but it's what you need. It's what you need. He gives you his presence that produces the fruits of wisdom in your life. That's the quality of the God who answers. And, and finally, just, just notice this last fantastic description. And sorry, it doesn't start with a Q but I didn't want to rob meaning for the sake of alliteration, Matt. Uh, notice the kindness of God to answer. Notice also the kindness, the grace, the mercy of God to answer. God answers quickly. God answers with the greatest quality. But God answers you, dear ones, with infinite kindness. Notice, he gives to who? To all. And and then notice also, he gives to all without reproach. What does it mean to reproach someone? It means to revile them, to scorn them, to mock them, to find fault with them, to withhold, to reprimand, to scold, to criticize them. This is a fantastic truth to me. When I go to God asking for wisdom daily, how does God respond? He answers without humiliating me without commenting on how I keep coming back to him, without asking me, what did you do with the last time I gave you a good gift? Oh, he, one commentator says he, he, he gives based on his designs, not on our dessert. Sort of. 
He, he doesn't, he, he gives to you and he, and he does so and he, and he doesn't bring up your shortcomings. Hallelujah. He, he doesn't say, oh, haven't you wasted so much of my gifts to you lately? I think I'm not going to give you as much this time. He doesn't hesitate to give either. He, he doesn't withhold from you, upset at you for your sinfulness. He doesn't say when he gives, why can't you just keep yourself out of trouble? Why, why, can't, you, why can't you just stay clean? He doesn't, he doesn't reproach you by saying, why do you just keep coming to me again and again and again? Why do you keep coming back to me with the same problem over and over and over again? God gives generously without reproach. Matter of fact, God loves giving gifts to needy, sinful people. God actually is after the glory of giving you, sinner, the good gifts of his grace and of his wisdom. As a matter of fact, you can't come to God unless you come weak and needy and dependent. He demands that you come again and again and again in your weakness and in your helplessness without him, and in your dependence on him and his grace again and again. Because that, dear ones, is how he has chosen to get glory through and from you. There's a few quotes I'll read. This one comes from a commentator, D. Edmund Hebert. He writes... Uh, God does not respond to our petition and then heap insults upon us for asking. He does not offensively recall the benefits already given or rebuke the applicant who asks for more. He does not give in a way that humiliates the receiver. He does not scold because we have inadequately used his former gifts or rebuke us for our repeated lack of wisdom. God's generous uh, generosity is measured by what he designs and not by what we deserve. Or MacArthur says this, The Lord will never cast even the mildest reproach on a child of his who comes seeking wisdom in time of trouble and testing. When you come to God, you come to a God who will never give you the mildest reproach. But when you come to God for wisdom and trial and testing, he will open the very best of his floodgates and give it to you. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that God doesn't reproach in some sense. There are some prayers, evidently, from this very passage that God does not answer, that God does not give anything towards. But this is who God is. And listen to this. This is who God is towards those who are humble, who are repentant, who are submitting, and who are coming to him dependently. That is who God is. In other words, the, the problem 
with effective prayers is not God himself. There is no problem in God in your effective prayers. The problem, however, with having an effective prayer life is in you. That is where the problem begins. Notice, notice, just, just to point it out, right? Let him ask of God who gives generously, and it will be given to him. But then he goes on and says, but... The problem is not with God. The problem is in you. Let's look at that final piece of effective prayer. And let's look at the hindrance of effective prayer this evening. The hindrance of effective prayer. It's it's clear to me in reading James 1 here that there is a type of person whose prayers are hindered and blocked and receive nothing. The treasure of heaven is barred to this type of person. There is a person who, according to verse 7, should expect nothing from God. Not a thing. They shouldn't expect anything. Not even a, a a small little drop of wisdom. This person will Get nothing, according to verse 7. There is a person who, regardless of how many times they ask and they ask and they ask, they will not receive. There is a person who is described to us here in verse 6, who is like, whose life is like a surf, a piece of wave, uh, waves on the sea. What does it mean to be surf? Surf is Water, moving around, rough water. It's not really a big breaker smashing against the rocks of the shore, but it's rather just waves being pushed this way and that way by wind that's constantly changing directions all the time. It's just regular waves, always changing, never the same. Notice that is verse 6. Notice down in verse 8. Um, notice it's, it's also something that is unstable, in all of his ways. That's a person who is being described here. That's similar to the water metaphor. And there's this idea there of ceaselessness. You're constantly moving, constantly restless. Matter of fact, that same word for unstable is, is referred to someone who is unstable in their tongue. Their tongue is restless in evil in chapter 3, verse 8. This person will not receive any wisdom from God, they will be restless. And their life will reflect a restlessness about them. Whether that's in their words, or in their actions, or in the chaos that they create. This person has (coughs) no stability, no firmness about them. They are constantly shifting, constantly moving because they cannot receive any wisdom from God that brings them true peace. Their life is chaos. And when the storm hits their life, they just make more chaos for both themselves and for people that are near them. Who is this person? What is at the heart of this person that causes them to bring so much instability and chaos in their life, what is it that is hindering their prayers? We, we see two words that James uses, and he, and he brackets this description of water 
with these two words that point to the heart of their problem. What is their inner, inner problem? Verse 6 tells us, instead of asking in faith, they are asking doubting. Now, this is a little precarious, but allow me to discreetly disagree with the LSB for one second here. I think a better translation of the word doubt would be divided within or would be contending or disputing within. Now, you won't find that in your translation. I looked at every single one. But I'm fairly convinced uh, that the word doubt doesn't mean doubt or hesitate, but rather means internally divided. You're like, that doesn't help me at all. What in the world, David? Believe it or not, I was, I was working on this all day yesterday. As a matter of fact, Serena last night asked me, how's your study going? And I'm like, I kid you not, I'm stuck on one word. And that's sometimes how it goes with me. But let me, let me try to explain and argue, argue why I don't think this word means doubt or hesitate. I don't think what James here is condemning is someone who just has a doubtful heart in them or who hesitates. Although I will say that it will result, their, their problem within, their divided heart within, will result in the manifestation of doubt. So we can agree on that. But let me just explain something really quick. The, 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 the interpretation of this word, uh, doubt, uh, doubt is not ever used for this word. Hesitate is never the translation of this word, not in like the, the Greek world that we know of in the first and, and so on centuries. And it's also never translated doubt or hesitate in the kind of first, you know, the, the early church's Bible, their Old Testament, which was the Greek Septuagint. It was never translated as doubt. It was always translated like you'd think the word would be translated. It's the word for judge or separate or make a distinction. It's krenomai or kreno or something like that. It, doubt or hesitate would be a very unique and surprising uh, translation. A doubt or hesitate would be James the author doing an intentional play on words that his audience would pick up on. But it's very weird that James uses this word, uh, Jesus uses this word, Luke uses this word, uh, a few other people use this word, a lot of different authors, but they all use it, and you're trying to tell me that they all have this special wordplay nuance? I don't know, maybe, I could be wrong. But once again, the basic the basic meaning of the word seems to always be judge or separate or make a distinction. Now, it seems to me that the word makes more sense to just take it in its natural meaning, the way the audience would have received it, and to say divided within. Someone who is divided within, someone who is inwardly disputing Someone with, maybe you could say, divided loyalties. That's how I would interpret this. Someone whose uh, allegiance is in conflict, in conflict between following God and following the world. It isn't loyal in trust to God, to his word, to his promises, to his sufficiency. This is someone who is divided within. 
It is someone who believes in the care and the provision and the sufficiency of the world over God. They are inwardly divided. It is someone who is not, get this, fully for God. It is someone without a whole heart towards God. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's the way God is towards his people. This is someone who is the opposite of who God is. They are divided within. So it makes sense. This is someone who claims to be God and belong to God on the outside, but inwardly they love the world and the praises of the world and the things of the world and the values of the world. They are divided within. It is not a heart that doubts God, you could say. It is a heart that inwardly rejects God and is disloyal to God. It is a heart that is a worldly heart. Matter of fact, look over at chapter 4, verse 1. This makes sense to me. Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members... You lust and do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then notice verse 3, you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That is someone who is divided within. I want my pleasures more than I want God's way. Now, once again, what is the effect of that kind of heart? It will result in a lot of outward manifestations for doubt, so we can agree on that. But it is truly a heart that is divided within, and notice, this actually makes a lot more sense to me when you think about it in connection to the other word that describes the inward condition of this person. What are they also? They are also, according to verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, double-minded They are divided within, and they are double-minded. You could say, literally, they are two-souled. They are two minds. They are two persons. It's one word that James is making up, probably, to describe someone who is two. They are someone who is unstable because their loyalties, notice this, their loyalties are divided in two different purposes and their desires are going two different ways. Their alignment, their allegiance to God is, in other words, less than total. They do not have a full heart towards God. They are double-minded. And turn back over to James 4.8. Notice this. It reveals this exact same person again. James 4.8 says this. Well, let's start in 4.7. Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee to you, uh, flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you what? Double-minded. Who is somebody who is double-minded? Who is it? They are, notice one, they are distant from God, Right? They, 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 they are resisting submitting their life to God. And then they are distant from God, because notice verse 8, they need to draw near to God. And then notice verse 8 as well, they need to cleanse their hands. They need to purify their heart. Their hands and their heart is polluted. 
because they are double-minded. And notice, uh, their loyalties are for the world. Because in 4, verse 4, it says this, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God, who is a double-minded person, a worldly person, a person whose loves and whose lusts are worldly lusts and worldly lusts. They are distant from God, and their heart is full of the impurity of lust. That is a double-minded person. They have a heart set on the values and the treasures of the world, and they resist the wisdom that comes from God. And notice the language. They seem to be in opposition to God. They are enemies of God. They resist his authority. MacArthur says this of double-minded people or a double-minded person. He claims to be a believer. His actions reveal he is an unbeliever. When he goes through a severe trial, he turns to human resources rather than singularly trusting the Lord for answers and for help. Or he becomes bitter and resentful and seeks no help at all. He does not renounce God, but he acts as if God doesn't exist, doesn't care or isn't capable of delivering him from trouble. He knows something of God's word and something of God's love, grace, and providence, but he refuses to avail himself of those divine resources. That's a double-minded person. They may look like believers on the outside, but inwardly, when times get tough, they leave God in the dust. Because they're divided. They're double. They're two people. And once again, this is the purpose of James, right? I want to shepherd you and show you your heart is being revealed through these trials. Your worldliness, your immaturity, this double-mindedness, this double-heartedness. Isn't this the exact same thing that Lot's wife possessed? She was on her way, according to some translations, out of Sodom maybe still in Sodom, maybe running back to Sodom at this point, but she was running to Sodom while God's judgment was coming down. The the people in 1 Kings 18 are described by Elijah as limping between two opinions. Their life is unstable and they're wandering all over the place because their loyalties are mixed. These are the kinds of people that Jesus, by the way, rejects. You could think of uh, the churches in Revelation. But just think about what Jesus says. What Jesus says God wants most. What he wants most of people is a wholeheartedness. You'll only find Yahweh when you come to him with wholeheartedness. Mark 12, 33 says, coming to God with wholeheartedness, loving him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind is more valuable than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is what God wants all of you. Complete, humble surrender to God. Now what do you do? What do you do if you see in yourself a dividedness? If you see in yourself a double-mindedness, what do you do? Will God answer any prayer? He will. But he'll only answer 
if the first prayer you pray is a prayer of confession, repentance, grief, mourning, sorrow. Notice, going back to chapter 4, verse 7, what do you do if this is you? You be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will what? Exalt you. He will bestow on you the glorious riches of the presence of his spirit, sanctifying you in the truth, and he will sanctify you into heaven. But don't you see? Don't you see? When you have that kind of heart, a humble heart, a grieving heart, you come to God weak. And you come to God dependent. And you come to God with nothing. And what is the kind of God that you find? A God that is quick to give. And quick to give quality. And quick to give in great, great mercy. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this evening that you've given to us in your word. We pray that your word would shock us. Show us ourselves and shine the glories of Jesus Christ to us. Pray this in in his name, begging for for you to do um, a great and merciful work. Amen.